Welcome to Full Scope, a weekly medical podcast designed to teach, inspire, and encourage listeners to question everything they know. I'm your host, Bill Brandenburg. Welcome back to this three-part episode regarding disease and infection prevention. Actually, we're probably going to split this part into two different sections because adults have so many recommendations. In general, there's just a lot more research available on the adult population than the pediatric and obstetric population. Some of that was because I think in in the past there were just a lot more studies done in adults, but even in modern times I think there's just a lot of fear regarding studying adults and or studying kids and pregnant women. I mean, we just don't want to harm these people. However, I think uh for many reasons those are probably some of the most important people to study because there's some very vulnerable populations but anyway let's enjoy some of the more robust research done in adults before we get into the meat of this podcast i think it's really important for all the listeners to understand that disease and infection prevention recommendations are not static variables These are things that can and will change constantly. I'm recording this in June of 2020, but I think it is so important that as clinicians, you go and review this stuff on, I would say, at least an annual or semi-annual basis. There's also a number of tools like... The United States Preventive Task Force has an application that you can use on your phone to type a patient in, which will cue you on what preventative things you should be thinking about. But really, this is just a constant target. You need to be constantly reviewing this, and probably in a a year or two from now, some of this stuff is going to be irrelevant. Uh, Getting back to how these things change, um, you know, these recommendations are influenced by a lot of things. The, The first thing is the prevalence of the disease or problem in the population. We all know positive predictive value and negative predictive value will change based on the prevalence of a disease in the population. By that same token, a test for prevention can become more or less important as the disease becomes more or less prevalent in the population. So that's, I think, the first really important thing to understand about why these things change. The second thing is that new research often comes out. You know, a better study or a bigger study can sometimes, uh, you know, expel an old study or validate an old study or maybe change our practice entirely. And then the final thing is that we are hopefully constantly progressing from a technology standpoint as medical providers. We're hopefully adding better tests, better screenings to our arsenal, and as we do that, recommendations certainly can and will change. So remember that three things affect the importance of these tests. That's the prevalence of the disease in the population, uh, also the research that's currently been done on it, and then of course available tests. And as those things change, certainly the recommendations will be changing as well. Another important concept is that these are recommendations for the United States population. They probably can be extrapolated to a lot of other populations within the world. However, they are not meant to be specific to those, and so please compare them with your own country's research and data from other sources to validate if this is the appropriate recommendations for your particular area and the particular uh, population that you're taking care of. Okay, let's get into Group A, recommendations for adult prevention of disease and infections, etc. The first one is regarding blood pressure, and that is to check blood pressure 
in adults age 18 and over. I know a lot of us are doing that in our offices all the time and that's exactly what should be happening. There's a, a well-defined correlation between blood pressure elevated for many years and heart and cardiovascular disease so please keep checking that. In general I'm considering treatment in patients that are consistently over 140 systolic or 90 diastolic. I'm also trying to get a couple readings from home or at a pharmacy or somewhere else where they're maybe a little less anxious to get a more accurate kind of global picture of what their blood pressure is. As people get older, I tend to give them a little bit more blood pressure, meaning that I'm sometimes okay with the 150 systolic or, or you know, 90s diastolic. I think we sometimes really aggressively treat these older folks and then they get up and fall and it causes more problems than we were trying to prevent in the first place. I know these numbers are somewhat controversial. There's lots of different studies and lots of disagreement. But I think the 140 over 90 treating above that is just easy to remember. A lot of studies are kind of picking that number. And so I would just stick with that. The next topic is regarding tobacco. And I know a lot of us are doing a really good job with this one too. Basically just advises us to ask about and then counsel patients about quitting smoking. I know many of us bring that up. However... I think many of us are falling short with regard to pharmacological help in quitting people uh, in helping people quit tobacco. Tobacco is chemically I should say nicotine in tobacco is chemically addictive and it controls us and it's very hard to get off of without help. And that's why prescribing nicotine replacement can be very helpful. Normally people are using patches gum and lozenges. There's also two pills that are used to uh, help with cravings as well that are FDA approved. Uh, the first one is bupropion. Uh, that's often used as an antidepressant but also can reduce cravings for tobacco. The other one is varincycline sold under the brand name Chantix in the United States. Uh, I've seen some people have some crazy reactions to Chantix and seen it gone bad, but I've also seen it gone well. And, and it's, it's not hard to outweigh the risks of smoking uh, with the benefits of a drug. There's also several other drugs you could consider using, though they're not FDA approved. Anything that reduces cravings could potentially be helpful. Um, Naltrexone is a good example. I find that a lot of providers will provide one uh, pharmacologic help mechanism for smoking cessation, but in reality, I think people should be using multiple. I think it'd be fine to put someone on Wellbutrin, uh, Varincycline, and nicotine replacement under two or three different uh, mechanisms. So please uh, load people up and get them off, get them off tobacco and nicotine. It is just so important for health. Moving on to colorectal cancer screening. There is a grade A recommendation to screen adults for colorectal cancer between the ages of 50 and 75. There are several ways of going about doing this. Um, one of the most common is a colonoscopy every 10 years. People are also doing fecal occult blood tests or fecal immunochemical tests or stool DNA tests yearly. There's radiological protocols, but no matter what kind of screening mechanism you're undergoing, 
it's so important to do so. Colon cancer is the third leading cause of cancer in the United States. It's also the third leading cause of death. According to the American Cancer Society, in 2019, there were approximately 145,000 new diagnoses of colorectal cancer, representing 16% of cancer diagnoses. In 2019, there were also approximately 51,000 deaths from colorectal cancer, representing 17% of total cancer-related deaths. After age 75, there is a grade C recommendation to continue colon cancer screening. I think that a lot of that depends on how healthy the person is. If you think they have 15 to 20 more years to live, it may be beneficial. If you think they have 5 to 10, it's probably time to stop checking. The next grade A recommendation is regarding cervical cancer screening in women. Basically, in women age 21 to 29 years, it's recommended to perform a papaniculau or pap smear every three years to check for cervical cancer. Between the age of 30 and 65 years old, providers and patients have a choice. They can either pursue a pap smear every three years or alternatively a high-risk HPV every five years. I'll say that I think that we're going to see increasing recommendations for HPV and decreasing recommendations for pap smears as time goes on, but it'll be interesting to see how the research actually plays out. It is not recommended to check for cervical cancer in women less than 21 years of age. In women greater than 65 years of age who have been previously screened and have not have cervical cancer do not need to continue screening. If they do have risk factors after age 65 or have never been screened, it probably would be uh, reasonable to do so. Interestingly, the new vaccine Gardasil, which isn't even really new anymore, but it is a vaccine against human papillomavirus, HPV. Usually people use a quadrivalent type, active against HPV type 6, 11, 16 and 18. 6 and 11 are commonly known to cause the actual warts that appear on people's genitals and other parts of their bodies. And 16 and 18 are both high-risk cancer subtypes, meaning that they tend to predispose people to cervical cancers. There's also a new or an even more new, I should say, Gardasil 9, which covers against nine types, 6, 11, 16, 18, 31, 33, 45, 52, and 58. Now, interestingly, it seems like there's probably some cross-reactivity between the different types, because from the research I've seen, it seems to uh, you know, prevent more than just those subtypes, which is kind of interesting. But I think the, the even more interesting thing is as we prevent one of the leading causes of cervical cancer, which is HPV infection, we're most likely going to see rates of cervical cancer drop tremendously in our population, which is going to make it really interesting to see just how important cervical cancer screening is in the future as we see more and more women getting this vaccine earlier in life. This hypothesis really highlights the idea discussed at the beginning of this episode about how the prevalence of a disease or cancer in a population really has a big impact on what recommendations are made regarding prevention of that issue.
The next set of grade A recommendations are regarding the human immunodeficiency virus or HIV. And that is that individuals between age 15 and 65 should be screened for HIV at least one time in their life. Now, if there's risk factors, if uh, you're concerned about HIV, you should certainly screen both younger than age 15 or after age 65, and also any number of times you know, between those ages of 15 and 65. High risk behavior for HIV infection includes injection drug use, as well as high risk sexual behavior, including having a sexually transmitted infection in the previous six months, having a sexual partner with HIV, and having unprotected anal sex outside of a monogamous relationship. There is a grade A recommendation that any individual with high risk of contracting HIV should receive what's called pre-exposure prophylaxis. Now the first thing to do with anybody with high risk for HIV would be to of course test them for HIV and if needed start highly active antiretroviral therapy. But if they don't have HIV you can really help them prevent getting that infection and prevent many other people from getting it as a public health measure. To do that, you prescribe a medication which they take once a day, and with good compliance, it's actually very effective at preventing HIV. Now, pre-exposure prophylaxis is extremely underutilized, and we really need to start encouraging our patients at risk to use this because this stuff works and it's important. The unfortunate thing is that they are expensive outside of insurance but there are several programs uh, which help people pay for these drugs and usually most cities have some type of clinic that can help people get these drugs at, at an affordable price or, or even free at times. The two drugs are uh, both the same essentially. They go by the brand names in the United States Truvada and Discovi and they're both combination pills containing emtricitabine and tenofovir. Both of those are basically reverse transcriptase inhibitors. Uh, they prevent viral replication and can prevent infection if taken before exposure to the virus. So please think about that and give those to your patients. It is so important. The final grade A recommendation is regarding syphilis or treponema pallidum. And the recommendation is that anyone with risk factors should be checked for syphilis. Risk factors include sexual uh, contact outside of a monogamous relationship. Okay, those are the grade A recommendations by the Preventative Task Force. Just to go over them one more time, they are checking blood pressure in people over 18 and treating them if above 140 over 90 talking to people about tobacco use and helping them quit with counseling as well as pharmacologic help measures, colon cancer screening in adults age 50 to 75 years old, cervical cancer screening in women age 21 to 65 years old uh, according to the mechanisms discussed, human immunodeficiency virus screening in people aged 15 to 65 years old at least once but possibly more if risk factors exist and prescribing pre-exposure prophylaxis with the combined pill um, entricitabine and tenofovir to anyone at risk of contracting HIV and then finally checking for syphilis for anyone with risk factors. 
Okay, moving on to Group B recommendations for adults. I'm going to just cover the infectious disease-related um, recommendations, and then we're going to have to kind of split this into a part two. But the first Group B recommendation is regarding hepatitis C. And the recommendation is that individuals age 18 and 79 be screened for hepatitis C virus. Uh, this should be done at least one time. But if, of course, risk factors are present, you can always screen more and outside of those age ranges. Um, I was pretty surprised to hear that HCV is also actually thought to affect 1% of the U.S. population in that it kills more people than the top 60 other reportable infectious diseases combined. I really didn't realize just how prevalent and just how big of a problem hepatitis C virus is. And now, as you've probably heard, now we have pretty effective treatments. They're obscenely expensive, but they are very effective. And so we can actually find this virus, cure it, and prevent the, the spread of it to other people. The biggest risk factor for hepatitis C is injection drug use. And it, the, the rates are just skyrocketing in young people that are injecting drugs. Another risk factor is blood transfusion prior to 1990. Before that time, we weren't actually looking for a hepatitis C virus in the blood bank. The next grade B recommendation is regarding hepatitis B virus. Providers should check for hepatitis B virus in individuals at high risk for infection. The main risk factors are coming from a country with a high prevalence of HBV, HIV infected individuals, of course injected injection drug use, high-risk sexual behavior such as men who sleep with men, household contacts infected with HBV, unvaccinated status, hemodialysis and medications like steroids that can lower the immune system. Between 700,000 and 2.2 million people are thought to be infected with hepatitis B virus in the United States, and it's a common cause of liver disease, liver cancer, and liver failure. So look out for those people with high risk and consider testing them. It, it could be a, a game changer in their life. The next grade B recommendation is regarding tuberculosis, and that is to screen individuals with tuberculosis that are uh, basically have risk factors. Those include coming from a country with a high uh, rate of tuberculosis, homelessness, incarceration, having concerning symptoms or lung findings for tuberculosis, um, and then also one thing that I think people often forget is that we really should be checking for tuberculosis anytime we start a medication that can lower the immune system. So all those immunologics, chronic steroids, really consider checking for tuberculosis before giving those because those can cause a resurgence of latent tuberculosis into active tuberculosis, which can create a, a problem for the patient and also spread the disease to, to other people much more readily. The next set of recommendations that are group B are regarding sexually transmitted infections. Um, in particular, chlamydia and gonorrhea, two of the most common. Uh, the first recommendation is to screen asymptomatic women less than 24 years of age who are sexually active annually for chlamydia and gonorrhea. And then you're supposed to screen men or women with risk factors at any age as frequently as possible for both chlamydia and gonorrhea. Chlamydia is the most common 
sexually transmitted infection in the United States. Uh, these infections can oftentimes um, not cause any symptoms and lead to reproductive issues in the future. And so that's why it, it's so important to screen asymptomatic women that are sexually active because they could potentially become sterile as a result of that infection. Healthcare providers are also supposed to provide counseling to any adults or adolescents that are at risk for sexually transmitted infections. Basically, anyone that is having uh, sexual contact outside of a monogamous relationship where both partners are known to be negative are at risk for sexually transmitted infections. Counseling should include things like uh, unwanted pregnancies, uh, birth control, barrier protection like condoms, recommendations for STI screening and frequency, consideration of pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, as well as screening for abuse and other pertinent information. Okay, that was a lot of stuff. I think I'm going to cut it off for now and continue with a second installment of adult preventive screening. We'll cover the rest of the grade B recommendations, grade C recommendations, grade D recommendations, and insufficient evidence. There are so many more things regarding adults. Please join us for this next installment. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Full Scope Podcast. You can find a lecture summary, key points, and any references on our website, fullscope.org. Additionally, this is the official podcast of Wonder Medicine PLLC, a for-profit medical clinic located in Boise, Idaho. As Carly and I own the clinic and draw revenue from it, we thought we should uh, d disclose it as a conflict of interest. Disclaimer alert! It's a trap! The Full Scope podcast was designed and created for educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or provide clinical knowledge specific to the care of any actual patient or population of patients. If you are in need of medical advice or treatment, contact a physician. The views and opinions portrayed on Full Scope are Dr. Brandenburg's. They do not represent the views or opinions of Wander Medicine Clinic, any of the academic institutions mentioned on the Full Scope podcast or website, or any of the hospitals which Dr. Brandenburg has or currently works at.